Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. SUAS News Podcast, where we interview and speak to the newsmakers and the global unmanned systems technology community. Today, we're gonna we're, we're gonna get a little off that topic, uh, but I, th- I think this is still gonna be a, a interesting show. We're gonna actually actually uh, interview an author today. Um, our guest is Montgomery Granger, and he's a retired U.S. Army uh, Reserve Major and the author of a book called Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay, A Memoir of a Citizen Warrior. But uh, before we bring him on, I just want to say hello and welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Mr. Patrick Egan. How are you, sir, today? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? You got uh, you, you busy or are you just vacationing for the summertime? No, you know me. I'm I'm never ever vacationing. It was Fourth uh, of July here, and uh, last night was a night of fires. We ended up having uh, six fires go out uh, all the way up through three o'clock this morning. So yeah, it was fun. It was a great Fourth of July. It went off with a bang. Mine consisted of a couple of not dogs and some interesting conversation. You know, we you know, we don't have like real fireworks here in California cuz we're afraid of fires. So we we've yeah. had kind of the peanut with the ones, but it was okay nonetheless. Anyway. Well, um so you're staying busy, you're doing some uh, some still doing some work out in the field and uh working away. I I saw a few pictures of you on Twitter um out in the field doing some some testing and training. And training. That's all good. Yeah, we're good. doing quite a bit of training. All right, well, that sounds good. So, you know, while we were on the Twitter uh, conversation, <laughs> this is where I met uh, today's guest was on Twitter, uh, Mr. Uh, Montgomery Granger. Uh, Monty, could you uh, maybe introduce yourself, give the listeners a little bio so they know who you are? Oh, sure. Thanks very much, and uh, I appreciate you asking me on your show today. And uh, greetings also to Gene. And appreciate it very much. Uh, I'm a three times mobilized United States Army Reserve major retired. Uh, entered the military uh, as a combat medic in 1986. And uh, sort of like that nice movie Stripes where uh, Bill Murray's uh, sitting at home feeling sorry for himself and sees Be All You Can Be on the TV and ends up in the Army. I saw loan repayment and thought about it for a while and thought, hey, uh, I was a newly licensed health and phys ed teacher and coach, um, single guy, and uh, looking for some adventure in life, served my country, 
and a skill that I could use in my civilian career, so I thought Army Medic. And uh, it worked out that my loans were paid off in five years, and I stayed in, became an officer. And uh, then on 9-11-2001, as it did for you gentlemen and your audience, I'm sure life changed forever. And I found myself in a 12-person military police enemy prisoner of war liaison detachment. Uh, That's not a mouthful. Uh, We had five different Army branches represented, including military police, JAG officer, transportation, supply, uh, medical, et cetera. And we were deployed to the U.S. military detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And I was the ranking U.S. Army Medical Department officer with the Joint Detainee Operations Group. Uh, which was the go-between between between the uh, Joint Task Force 160 Brigade Unit and the controlling U.S. Army Military Police Battalion, which ran the camp. So my boss was actually the camp commandant uh, during my time there between February and June 2002 when we stood the mission up. And... um... You know, I guess before I should start asking you those types of questions or, you know, more detailed questions, let's, you know, talk about the inspiration for writing the book. Now, you know, are are you a, you know, a writer also or was there inspiration for writing the book was due to uh, other circumstances? How, how did the book come about? Yeah, the book was a combination of things. I think the most important thing for me was when I when I got home from uh, another tour, I did a 14-month tour to Iraq in 2004-2005. When I initially got home, I was I was real pissed off, and I was mad because it seemed like nobody at home knew there was a war going on or cared, and everything I saw about Guantanamo Bay was all wrong. Uh, I calmed down after a few weeks and realized that that's why we do what we do. We do what we do so the folks back home uh, can go about their daily lives. So I stopped being pissed off about that, but I never stopped being pissed off about how Guantanamo Bay is portrayed in the media. And uh, that uh, projected me into an idea that I wanted to write a book about this. Uh, It really wasn't too difficult to write because I kept a journal uh, electronic journal while I was at Guantanamo Bay. I had started keeping daily notes on my life since I was about seven years old. My mother gave me a diary and said, write in this every day. And so I kept up that habit, thank goodness. And uh, so I just went back to my journal and uh, put stuff before it and after it and had a glossary and uh, included uh, some uh, official musings that I had and passed forward and, and uh, uh, about the place. Well, and it, you probably had a little uh, time uh, on your hands there. As I hear there's not a lot of uh, extracurricular activities at the camp, or you know. Well, uh, I did work with a guy that uh, his wife was a civilian contractor there, and he said there's really not a lot to do. I, I tried to encourage him maybe to open a business like a fish taco stand, you know, and have these meal platters named after the Castro brothers. But uh, he said that the commandant over there wasn't uh, really open to the idea of private businesses at the the camp. 
No, in fact, actually, I'll disagree a little bit because when I got there, it looked like any base USA and reminded me of Southern California where I grew up. And uh, on the leeward side, which is the side where most aircraft have to land, they have the long uh, runway there. Uh, Everybody kind of flies in there and you come over on a ferry boat. But on the windward side, it's like any base USA has a main street, restaurants, outdoor theater, Navy Exchange, which is like your local Walmart. Uh, your McDonald's that runs out of milkshakes every other day. Uh, you had Cuban restaurant, Jamaican restaurant, scuba diving, uh, pretty much anything you might see in small town USA. Uh, but uh, for the detainees, um, you know, you, when I tell people that they had free Korans, uh, prayer rugs, prayer beads, services of the U.S. Army uh, military Muslim chaplain, um, that they were given special meals on Muslim holidays, including baklava and lamb, that uh, today they're allowed to wear white robes, grow beards. We had on the guard towers when I was there, uh, the Marine General Leonard uh, ordered there to be in green Arabic uh, directions to Mecca. Um, and we were not allowed to play the national anthem and raise the flag in the morning because it might what? offend them. And uh, we had we had big problems with that. Uh, you know, psyops was there. They they came in in their doom buggies and uh, started to rock and roll the place with music. And and uh, the general cut that out. And in fact, this general General Leonard, who had absolutely no training or experience in detention operations other than he was there during the, the uh, Haitian boat crisis. Um, when The day he left, I'll never forget it, he went to each detainee. We had about 250 at the time. And I uh, gave him a piece of candy uh, and said goodbye to him. So, so much for, you know, the warm and fuzzy Marine General. Uh, That's you know, sweet. Taking care of business. Yeah, it, was, it really uh, was upsetting, actually, to a lot of us. Uh, now, we are trained to treat all detainees with dignity and respect. And, in fact, when my boss got there for a briefing, uh, he heard directly from uh, uh, the man in charge uh, at, the, at the State Department that uh, even though these detainees were not entitled to the protections or privileges of the Geneva Convention, we would treat them within the spirit of Geneva. And that's pretty much all we needed to know because that's the only way we train. We don't train to abuse or torture people. We train to take care of them, and the prison philosophy is to keep them fat and happy so they're less dangerous to themselves and others and more cooperative. So that's kind of what we expected to come into. We didn't expect to come into a situation where uh, they had better health care than U.S. personnel, which I knew firsthand because my my job was not just detention care, detainee care. It was good guy care as well. So it was a joint operation. So we had all the services representatives, represented, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and Coast Guard. And my job was to coordinate services of the medical personnel from each branch. And it was very frustrating because we were told that good guy care only happens with organic transportation. Anybody who's been to Gitmo knows transportation is a big problem. Many units decided not to ship their organic transportation assets over to Gitmo because it took too long. And, oh, by the way, they were promised a couple uh, 
you know, SUVs when they got there. Well, a couple of SUVs, guess what? The commanders and the sergeant major take care of those. And then when the soldier is sick and needs to go to sick call, there's no transportation. So he has to either walk or wait for the bus that could be up to two-hour wait. The detainees, on the other hand, we push forward medical care. So the, the organic medics were busy in the camp pushing forward to detainees who complained about this or that. Um, so it's well, pretty frustrating. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, from the, uh, let's say, um, I guess, you know, we'll just call it the, the, I don't want to call it mainstream media, but I'll just say, you know, from what we heard is the, the citizens out here, you know, people try to paint this picture that these guys were treated poorly and, you know, they were, uh, you know, they're prisoners in some kind of gulag um, but uh, what you're telling us is is something that's a little bit different. I, I've seen the pictures myself of of uh, what's going on there. People look well fed. Um, I, I don't see any signs of uh, you know what I would call abuse. Of course, you're detained. Um, you know nobody really wants to be detained, but these guys aren't. This, we're, we're not talking about uh, people knocking off liquor stores and you know or jaywalking or yeah. No, at the very least, they're unlawful combatants, and they were picked up on the battlefield, and many thousands were picked up on the battlefield, but less than uh, 800 were ever incarcerated at Gitmo. So there's a battlefield screening process that we were told took place on most of the detainees, and I say most because some were just delivered by our friendly neighborhood shadow warriors with no paperwork, but the vast majority of them came with um, the paperwork that, that they were captured with, with information uh, about them that led us to believe they might have valuable information that could save many lives. And that indeed uh, was corroborated by George Bush's uh, autobiography decision points where he said those very words, that they uh, did waterboard uh, a handful of detainees and that uh, got some important information that saved many lives. So uh, people say, oh, there was abuse and torture. Was there abuse? Of course there was, but it was very minor. And it was dealt with swiftly and harshly. And just an example, we had a, an MP guard in Navy detention hospital facility that would go up uh, behind detainees who were prone on their, on their cots sleeping, and he would slap the back of their heads and wake them up. And uh, he was swiftly dealt with. And uh, it's, it's not a, a job that's well-suited to everyone. Uh, normally, for a job like that, you would have uh, weeks of orientation and training. Well, these guys were just thrown in there. And I'm not making excuses for them, but that's the, the level or type of abuse we were talking about uh, that was not common, but it did happen. As far as, as far as torture, absolutely no torture took place at Gitmo, to my knowledge. And if you look at enhanced interrogation techniques, those were approved and legal procedures uh, that were performed not by anyone Department of Defense. Uh, Department of Defense personnel are not trained in, in enhanced interrogation techniques. That is the CIA. Uh, maybe other alphabet suit people are trained how to do that. I don't know, but I do know that the CIA is trained in enhanced interrogation techniques. So there was no uh, program, there was no regular, there was no institutionalized abuse at Gitmo except for detainees against guards. Now, detainees would frequently, at least in my tour, uh, sucker punch, uh, spit on, 
throw what we call the Gitmo cocktail, which is full of bodily fluids, and you can use your imagination with that one, on oh, two yeah. guards uh, frequently. Um, and the only approved retaliation we could do uh, was to hog time for two hours or put them in a uh, restraining chair for two hours. Uh, that was it. You know, we're not allowed to beat them or torture them or abuse them in any way uh, other than that disciplinary action. Well, you know, Monty, I, I think by that definition, I could probably say that back in the 70s when I went through boot camp, my, my drill instructor tortured me. <laughs> I'll bet he did. <laughs> but, you know, in my book, I put the definition that was uh, the internationally accepted definition of torture in my book from 2005. And I did that because uh, the average person does not have any clue what that definition says. And yeah. it's important that when you, when you deal with, with left liberal uh, people who, who want to say, oh, that's torture, it's torture just to have to look at the American flag. Well, no, it's not. If we can't define our terms, we can't have a rational discussion about anything. And we have to agree on our terms to move forward. So that's why there was an internationally accepted definition. Now, uh, former President Obama didn't like that waterboarding could not be defined as torture using the internationally accepted definition. So he just added it to the list. So under President Obama, waterboarding became torture because he wanted it to, not because it fit the definition. Yeah, but again, I mean, we had some, uh, you know, people there, uh, guests, let's call them. I mean, some of these guys like uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and uh, some of the mm-hmm. other guys, these, these guys were like, these, these were high-level people. These were bad people yes no innocent what, what do you think no there's no guilty or innocent unless you unless you've been accused of a war crime and tried and convicted no one is guilty and and even if you're not guilty you're not innocent it's just that you didn't prove we didn't prove the guilt so what happened was when uh, george w bush was president they came up with a uh, 2006 Uh, Military Commissions Act, and in it they modified uh, a true military commission by the book. So I'll digress for a second. 1942, six of eight German saboteurs were put to death less than eight weeks after they were captured dry foot on Long Island, New York, and in Florida. They had the means and the intent to kill and blow property, damage property, the important thing to understand about this, a couple things. One is they never hurt a fly and they never damaged any property. However, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court of the United States, at the request of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president at the time, voted unanimously to uh, invoke what was already on the books and establish a military commission. Now, a regular military commission by the book gives a a person accused of a war crime, the exact same rights that a United States soldier would get from the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or UCMJ. So they would go through a trial, a a tribunal, which is a military commission, and have the same rights and privileges in that court that a U.S. soldier would have if a U.S. soldier had been accused of a crime. So those were the standards and rules that these eight German saboteurs 
were tried on. Two of the eight flipped on the other six, but the six, again, in less than eight weeks after their capture, hadn't heard a fly blow anything up, were put to the electric chair because they didn't follow the rules. They were found guilty as spies. They were not wearing uniforms, didn't carry their arms openly, and it was proven in the military commission that they had the intent to kill and damage property and had the means to do so. So when you fast forward to 2006, Military Commissions Act, the Bush administration, and Don Rumsfeld explains this very clearly in his autobiography, Known and Unknown, that they wanted a kinder, gentler military commission because they felt they would get less uh, backlash uh, from the world and from our own press and from the, the liberal left. So they modified the rules. So it gave the detainees who were accused of war crimes even more rights than they would get had they been put on trial in 1942. Uh, I disagree vehemently with that. I think it should go back to the 1942 precedent and just go by the book on these things because it would be much quicker. And, uh, you know, each one of these guys, uh, Pat and Gene, each one of these guys could have been lawfully killed on the battlefield. The only mm-hmm. reason that they're alive was because they may have information that could save many lives. And so here comes Obama. Obama institutes the Military Commissions Act of 2009. He modifies the, the Act of 2006 to the point where a detainee accused of, of war crimes has virtually the same rights you or I would enjoy in a federal court of law. And that's unprecedented. It goes against mm-hmm. the law of war. It goes against the Geneva Conventions. These guys are not entitled to extra legal privileges, except for the fact that they were gifted them through the Obama administration. That seems pretty crazy uh, to me. You know, the other thing that really is a is this kind of chaps my hide is I, I know they tried to reduce the numbers of detainees held there um, and release them to other countries or let them go or whatever, and then it seems like, uh, you know, we pick them up again on the battlefield. Uh, you know, I mean, is, is this like a rehabilitation facility or, you know, uh, you know, through, well, uh, ping it's, pong it's unique. That's a, that's a very good question, but you know, it's important for everyone to understand that, uh, the, the mission at Guantanamo Bay is detention. It's not a prison. It's not a corrections facility. It's not, are you guys still there? Yes, sir. I am. Okay, I, I'm just uh, sorry, but I, I just I'm afraid I should be be very quiet at this point. <laughs> no, something happened with my phone. I thought I dropped your call. Um, uh, but where was I? Uh, Talking uh, about the, the not a rehabilitation. Yeah, right. It's not a prison. It's not a rehabilitation. It's not punishment uh, because they haven't been accused of anything. Ninety-nine percent of them. Ten of them are, are currently being prosecuted for war crimes under the Military Commissions Act of 2009, which we all know now is the same as if you or I were in a federal court of law. And, you know, federal cases can take years to resolve. Uh, as much as the other side wants to be contentious, they can, and they're allowed to question virtually anything in the process. But Gitmo is simply retention. We're only holding them. 
and and that is kind of confusing to a lot of people. I thought it was a prison, and they're you know got to break big rocks into little nope. And they don't have the privileges of POWs. In 2004-5, I was in Iraq, and for six months I served in a place called Ashraf. And Ashraf was where we held uh, protected persons, and the protected persons were the Mech or Mujahideen al-Qaq. These were Iranian expatriate nationalists who worked for Saddam Hussein, put down the Kurdish rebellion, and when we went in in April 2003, they threw up their hands. They had uniforms. They had a command structure. Uh, they acted on the Geneva Conventions. They laid down their weapons and surrendered to us. So what did we do? We put a fence around that compound, and within that compound, we held another compound for those who wanted to defect from this organization. And so while they were there, they actually had the, the privileges of protected persons. They could order things with credit cards. We, we, we let them modify their tents, and it looked like a little uh, hut city. Uh, we gave them sandbags, which they made you know, fake plants out of. The place was amazing. But that's the difference between a detainee who's an unlawful combatant, no privileges, to a prisoner of war or detained person, which they had a canteen, a, you know, a store within a store, and, uh, you know, they made their own, uh, we had to take it away, but they made their own uh, moonshine. Uh, you know, uh, these guys were incredible. But at Guantanamo uh, Bay, it's just being held. All right, and I think that that's another thing with the, uh, you know, we, we briefly spoke about that on the telephone this morning, uh, you know, I, I, and, and I, I don't want to only say that it's the lack of intellectual honesty that, uh, you know, we, we talked about that on Facebook, because I think it's more than that. I think it's a lack of education. People don't understand what all of these differences and nuances are and how murky this whole deal gets. And, you know, it's not like, uh, like you said, like a correction facility or people are getting rehabilitated. You're just kind of a, 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 in a holding pattern there. Um, but I do, you know, I, while this is still current, because this isn't, you know, it's still people there. Um, there's still news coming from this. So we, it's in the news today about this, um, you know, I guess past detainee. I'm, I'm not sure what his status is. That the Canadian government is going to award millions of dollars to. Are, are you aware of this, uh, this new story, Monty? Yeah, I'm still fuming about it. Um Omar Khadr was uh, 15 years old when he admitted to throwing a grenade that killed Sergeant First Class Christopher Spear, a Special Forces medic, and uh, also took an eye from another soldier. He pleaded guilty, served time at Gitmo, and was released to Canada, uh, a place he had citizenship with, for two more years, and was released, and... Uh, the idea that they would apologize to him and give him millions of dollars uh, is beyond belief. Uh, there's really you know, no words uh, that can describe how that makes me feel, and God knows how it must make the widow of Sergeant First Class Spear feel. In fact, uh, I read recently that she is going to do everything she can to make sure that Omar Carter doesn't see a cent because she's suing uh, to get that money for herself and others who are affected uh, by this murderer. 
Yeah, no, and let me, you know, so and I'm gonna, I'm, a, I'm going out on a limb, but I'm gonna assume that the grenade was not thrown in Canada. Is that correct? No, it was not. In fact, it was thrown in Afghanistan. Oh, oh, so do they? Do they? Yeah. Have, do they have like a club med thing going there in Afghanistan where people go vacation and well, you know? Oh, I'm gonna throw some grenades I, today. Tomorrow, it's shuffleboard. I believe yeah. that uh, Canadians have been involved in the global war on terror and have lost uh, scores of soldiers in this global mm-hmm. fight, and I think they're pretty upset. And I think the average Canadian is upset. It's embarrassing to them, and I've seen that on social media, that Canadians are coming out of the woodwork to say uh, how disbelieving it is and how embarrassing it is. And, and uh, it certainly is. I, I think anyone associated with that government should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, it's really pathetic. Yeah. Uh, insult. It is. And and you just, it, people are elected, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too political, but people are elected as leaders of a country for a certain reason. And then, you know, something like this happens and you're wondering, you know, what, what, where did, you know, is this like cuckoo land or what's going on here? I, you know, it, it, it's really, um, it's disheartening, but I don't think that we're going to solve that in this podcast. But that is, it, it's still a current affair or event thing that just keeps going on. And, uh, you know, I know you spent some time doing all of this. I mean, uh, you know, and we didn't really get into a lot of, you know, the day-to-day. And we're going to run a little long, but, you know, can can you give us maybe a little, like, what it what it was like day-to-day at this facility? Sure. Uh, since my job was uh, you know, basically care of the bad guys and good guys, a liaison officer, I'd spend every morning uh, at the detention hospital. I'd attend their daily staff meetings. I'd file a report with my boss who would send it up the chain. Uh, I received daily reports uh, on what we called medical intel. In other words, we had a non-commissioned officer going through the camp daily and just walking through and uh, listening to the complaints of detainees. Anything that we felt was of medical significance, I filed a report, gave that to my boss and to the uh, commander of the Navy Fleet Hospital, which was their mobile, uh, think MASH. The Navy has these little MASH units too. Uh, And we would reach out to these detainees. I would do camp inspections with environmental and preventive medical assets. Uh, which uh, took me through the camps. Uh, I observed every time we got incoming detainees, uh, I would often go to the airport and watch their dip, uh, watch them debark their plane, get on the buses. I'd be in the convoy back, and I'd watch each and every one of them in process for quality control. Um, and I can tell you, I think one of the things I'm most proud of is how uh, these five services, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and Coast Guard, performed their duties. It was incredible. It's a very difficult mission. Uh, when we got there, it was uh, 12 on, 12 off for most of the Guard Force. And for us, we frequently put in 14-hour days, seven days a week. There was no such thing as a day off. And these fellows and gals worked their tails off, most professional group I've ever worked with in my life. I assume it's still the same way. 
but the guard force were outside all day, every day. Uh, and because of the way the Marine Corps had set it up, or, or the Department of Defense set it up, they actually ignored the 800th MP Brigade, which is the only, was at the time, the only uh, U.S. Army enemy prisoner of war unit. It was a reserve unit. They ignored our recommendations for uh, levels of uh, security uh, and restriction. Instead, they put every single detainee in a separate uh, cell, as you were, just think dog kennel, uh, slab of cement with chain link separating them, and they'd be in uh, different groups uh, in that fashion. So anytime they had to come out for a shower, for exercise, for uh, interrogation interviews, to use the latrine, it took at least two guards to move each detainee. Uh, and they had to be on a rotating basis. So they had buckets in their cells in case we couldn't get to them fast enough. Uh, it was a nightmare logistically. And it was extremely hard on the guard force uh, to have to transport these guys to and from. And when we transported them, they had to be in full shackles, which means a traveling belt, uh, wrist shackle to the belt, and shackles on feet. So they shuffled. It was very difficult to move because there was very large aggregate or rocks forming the base uh, of the ground at the camp. Uh, so it was an extremely difficult mission, uh, but nobody complained. Everybody did their job. 99.9% of the troops did a fantastic job. And the most impressive day to me was when we moved them from Camp X-Ray. And you see these pictures all the time. Oh, you can look at a Gitmo uh, story today and you see this picture of them kneeling down uh, mm-hmm. with their orange jumpsuits and eye, you know, blackout eyes and earmuffs. So that was actually just the transition cell, the, the holding cell before they went to get in process. But when I talked to people about the picture, they said, oh, yeah, look at this. This is torture. You shouldn't do it. I'm like, dude, you think we kept them there the whole time on their knees, on the rocks? And every time you see the picture, nobody ever bothers to explain, oh, they were there for 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes tops, and then they were in process. But that's the impression you get. But the most impressive day to me was the day we moved them from Camp X-Ray. And believe it or not, they were only there for about four months. They were moved in April of 2002 to a much better facility you never see pictures of called Camp Delta, which was construction for Camp Delta began as soon as we hit the ground there. So they're only right. there at Camp X-Ray, a very Spartan uh, operation, very difficult to maneuver in for about four months. And then they were given their individual cells. They had their own squat toilet. They had their own pressure release sink. They had a place to lay their, their bed out. And the airflow was so good in these uh, facilities that uh, you could have uh, done some welding there with no extra ventilation. I mean, that was really good airflow. So they had a huge step up. And that one day we moved over 250 uh, detainees. The same guards did it over and over and over again, moving every single detainee into a much better facility. And through the interpreter, because I witnessed the whole thing, the interpreter kept saying, they think we're taking them to be executed. They think we're taking them to be executed, which, of course, is what they would expect. Right, right. Um, but, you know, one other thing, uh, briefly, is that is Camp X-Ray still open or is that closed? Do you know? It's been closed for some time. And in fact, it was only used, again, from uh, late January 2002 to April 
2002. That's it. And yet that is, yeah, well, that is the pictures that they show. Right, right. Not a, not a, it was uh, another motivation for me writing the book. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, we ran a little long. Uh, we've, you know, it's kind of been eye-opening. And, and on the other hand, I'm a little, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like Gene where I don't, I'm erring on, or, or let's say being quiet on the side of caution, which isn't usually my style, but uh, today I'm, that's where I'm at. So maybe you could tell us where uh, folks could go, listeners could go to uh, get a copy of the book or, you know, learn more about this story. Sure. Uh, the book is available on Amazon.com and it's available in uh, e-version softback, which is a uh, updated version. The hardback was 2010. It's no longer available. Uh, we added uh, about 14 pages of information in 2012, and that's the softback version that's available through Amazon uh, and other booksellers throughout the world, actually. Uh, they can do that. They can also follow me on Twitter. It's uh, MJ Granger and the new World one. And uh, I have a uh, blog site, which is simply Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay dot com, where I will uh, muse the day's uh, big events. Uh, sometimes I cover Gitmo, uh, sometimes I don't. Uh, but uh, I appreciate having this opportunity to explain some some of the mythbusters about Gitmo uh, and about my time there. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, thanks a lot for being on. Gene, did you have any closing comments? I know you were over there quiet too, but I want to give you that opportunity. No, I I, uh, I have to believe that uh, there is so much misinformation that we get from so many different sources, and uh, a lot of it is opinion and opinionized and politicized, and it's it's very difficult for me to hold my tongue sometimes, uh, especially in this situation. I, I don't know, uh, you know, in detail or in depth what went on at Git, but I know a lot of my buddies that, well, suffice it to say, I, you know, I, I knew that there were a lot of untruths being told, and this is one of those days that I'm, I just have to be quiet uh, because I could get spooled up pretty easily there, and uh, mm. I, I probably shouldn't. All right. Well, you know, it was an interesting conversation. Thank you for your service, uh, Monty, and uh, I'll be seeing you on Twitter, buddy. Yeah, thanks so much for your support, Patrick. I'll be seeing you, my friend. And thank you, Gene. You bet. Have a good day, Monty. You too, gentlemen. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.